Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 91, the last episode of 2019, recorded on December 18th. And uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, to talk about geeky photo stuff. Uh, and with me, as always, is a co-host that rotates and somebody that I've been meaning to have back on for a while. Uh, in fact, uh, this is the uh, the host of a another photography podcast, Tips from the Top Floor. We've got Chris, Mar- uh, Chris Marquart with me, if I could say his name correctly. And Chris... <laughs> Chris, um, I, I, I love having you on, but I knew your voice well before I knew the voices of any other photographer because your podcast uh, is one of the oldest, longest running photography podcasts in the world. And yeah, way, way to first, make me feel old. <laughs> uh, hey, you know what? It's the first photography podcast that I listen to. And I still, I, I don't listen to every episode uh, these days. Time is precious uh, as now that I'm a professional photographer and I have to divvy up my time, but uh, I still glean uh, insights and inspiration from you on a regular basis. So thanks for keeping uh, keeping that up. Oh, of course. And uh, yeah, I think I've been doing this for over 14 years now, which yeah, kind of dates me a bit. Well, okay, and 14 years, a decade and a half just about. I mean, I've been doing this podcast for only about two years. I've been a professional for, uh, you know, about 10 years, a professional photographer. Uh, And over that time, uh, the industry has changed radically, hasn't it? Everything has changed dramatically. I mean, so it's amazing to see the developments that that have taken place and and kind of try to look in the future, um, which we we as professionals kind of have to do to stay to to go where the puck is going to be and yeah and uh yeah looking back to some of the older episodes i did it's kind of funny how things are very different now well it's uh, it's different in a number of ways and and we've got some very light stories to talk about today and uh, things that we can kind of uh banter about and, and go back and forth on sort of around this whole idea of of transition right i mean as as professionals uh i think that no industry is changing quite as radically in the arts field uh, as photography. And one can argue that the music industry is changing radically too. I'm not going to debate that. Um, but I think that from a, uh, a standpoint of being a, a visual artist uh, or an artist of any kind, uh, the world is, uh, is transforming. And if we stay static, then we're kind of lost in the surf. We, we have to uh, almost reinvent ourselves on a yearly basis, just about, it feels. Uh, yeah, and, and <clears throat> I think one of the big things that uh, keeps changing more and more is the, the level of skill that someone needs to get a technically decent photo. Um, a lot of things is is happening in terms of automation and a lot of things is happening in terms of computation, in terms of uh, machine learning. Um, and that allows a lot of people uh, to take, in air quotes, good pictures, because of course there are other factors that are completely non-technical, but uh, technically good photos that, uh, that, that, would, that, that wouldn't have been possible earlier. And um, for us professionals, especially, I mean, I, I look at the, at the skill that I um, worked hard to acquire uh, over the, over the decades. And I see that a lot of that I don't really need anymore. Um, like pre-visualization of exposure with a mirror camera. If you have a mirrorless, you get get a live preview and you know how it's going to come out. These kind of things, the, the newer photographers don't really need to learn these things anymore. And that but changes a lot. To say, 
Uh, it does. Uh, uh, would it be fair to say, though, that it's easier to be good, but also harder to be great? Of course. I mean, the the the, tech, the technical side, of course, cameras still cannot cannot uh, detect your intentions for a shot. So you will still have to have the skill to override whatever the camera thinks is the right thing. Um, if you have a creative vision, if you know what the shot's got, uh, is supposed to be. Um, that is one thing. And then, again, the, all the non-technical things like um, framing of a shot, like timing of a shot, like uh, uh, whatever, stuff that isn't as as easily uh, as easily accessible <laughs> to, to some of us techies. Um, it is really, it, it, it shifts the whole balance towards a different field, I think. I, I think you're right. Uh, but I, I also think in terms of public perception, um, you know, the the bar to get a passably acceptable photograph um, has been dropping because the the quality of images that everybody is seeing, yes, they're getting better computationally and everything else. Uh, but most of the time they are still technically good snapshots. Uh, and that seems to be acceptable to the majority of people that are seeing them because that's the majority of images that people see these days. Um, and so that means that in order to make an exceptional image, a great photograph, um, you have to like completely reinvent yourself. Like you have to just like make something so phenomenally fantastic that it actually makes a difference to people that are looking at it. And that's much harder to do now, I think, than it has been in the past. Oh, it is. And, and uh, of course, it all, all depends on how you define fantastic. Could be... Um could be entirely on the on the molecular level it could be on a perceptional level on a psychological level so there there that's what i love about photography there are so many angles to the whole thing that it never gets boring never does yeah and you know photography is an art people love it and hate it and you know any image that you take you will have people that uh you know are uh they're their hearts are beating in sync with yours and, and they're they're just loving everything that you do. And then there are people that are completely out of sync with what you're doing and don't care about it one bit. Uh, and I think that we are in sort of a social uh, revolution as well, where uh, the ability to find an audience, uh, even if there's only a small number of people that appreciate your work, not because it's bad, but because it is a niche, because it's a small, uh, narrow area of photography, uh, that you can find that audience. And you can cultivate that in a way that you never were capable of before. And it's an art and it's a science. And I, I really love it at the point where those two intersect. I mean, that's, that's the stuff that you're doing pretty much. Well, and so photography, you've got the science. In the past, you would have had to deal with mathematics and chemistry as part of the science element of it. And that's mostly uh, obscured from view at this point, but still understanding how light bends, understanding uh, the, uh, in some cases, I mean, when I'm doing extreme macro stuff, you've got to calculate for diffraction or, you know, uh, fluorescence or all of these wonderful things that I experiment with. And that's the science side. But the art side cannot be forgotten. The the idea of composition, lines and shapes and colors, the way that our eyes wander around a frame, the, the definition of beauty, right? This, this all has to come into play. And photography, I think, is its most magical when you weave art and science together. And the more deeply you can weave them, the better the results will be. Very true. Well yeah. said. Uh, but at the same time, <clears throat> uh, you know, we... 
I'm always lusting after the latest new quirky lens. <laughs> uh, Who and, doesn't? <laughs> uh, well, and you know, it was funny because in the one of the previous episodes, I was talking about uh, uh, Zongyi Optics um, that had produced a a new macro lens that was uh, claiming to, uh, I, I don't know if they said specifically, but on paper, the specifics looked like it would be better than uh, my daily driver lens, the Canon MPE 65 millimeter. I've used it for uh, a good part of my professional career. And uh, so they were producing an 85 millimeter one times uh, to five times magnification macro lens. And I got it and I tested it and it was complete garbage. And I, <laughs> I, I wrote a review, uh, kind of a comparison of it uh, in, in a mix with a bunch of other lenses. In fact, lenses designed in the 1970s, and it failed compared to every single one of them. And I was harsh, but a lot of other reviewers were too. And uh, I got an email from uh, from them specifically, uh, you know, personalized to me saying, hey, we appreciate the review. We're halting the sale of this lens and we're going to review it. Ooh. And and so they they actually went back to the drawing board with the lens and they found a fault. Uh, and this was kind of shocking for me because with all of the technology that we have available, not just to take pictures, but to make the equipment to take pictures, the fact that something like this has has failed, uh, it was somewhat shocking to me. And I'll, I'm going to read you, uh, I just pulled it up here, um, uh, what they said that, uh, just to keep you updated on the progress, we've identified the issue and believe it's coming from a miscalculation of numerical aperture and hmm. in turn leads to additional unused light rays reflected into the lens creating much softer images uh yesterday they had built a prototype and compared it against the liowa 25 millimeter super macro lens and the result is much more comparable and they did send me uh some images in confidence uh comparing the two and it looks a heck of a lot better um isn't, isn't that interesting is, is is that is that a thing i mean i see i see quality issues uh, seeping into other areas as well um, is that a sign of the times? People need to save and and save on save on QA and that kind of stuff. I well, the, the thing is, QA uh, quality assurance or quality control. This isn't a QA issue. It's a design issue. Yeah. It was built to its design specifications, but the design specifications were flawed to begin with. But uh, but how could but how could they so quickly then find the flaw that is? apparently the major flaw in that lens. Because nobody ever used the lens? I don't Probably. know. <laughs> you know, it's a sim similar thing just happened with Canon. Canon had uh, um, uh, released the RF um, for the for the uh, mirrorless full frames. The RF uh, 72, is it 80? 80 or 70 to 200? Uh, I, I believe it's a 70 to 200, yeah. Yeah, and uh, people found that that lens would consistently front focus when used between 100 and 200 millimeters in close focus settings. And and you could imagine that... And didn't, Canon, didn't anyone test that? <laughs> I, I, okay, so Canon probably sent out the lens for a variety of uh, photographers to shoot, and maybe yeah. they weren't using it at, at the closest focusing but they, distance. And, but, but don't but, you but think to have that in the lab? They test that in the lab on, the, on an optical bench somewhere? I would expect that. You'd have to have a test, uh, like a little checklist. Oh, okay, let's test it at yeah. this focal length at this focus distance and this one at this focus distance. And so test on and it so at forth. every focal length, every five millimeters through the, throughout the entire focal length with 10 different distances. That's, that's a, a test matrix that should be doable. You know, uh, and and we'll, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, 2020. 
I'll I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Probably something weird happened. Maybe last minute fix in the firmware that then introduced a, a side effect or something. So they they, they said they will uh, release as quick as possible. They will release a firmware update and that'll fix it. So yeah, maybe. I'm glad that this can be fixed. And, and I'm glad that, of course, uh, uh, that uh, uh, Zongyi Optics has announced that they will be shipping uh, new lenses in January timeframe. But then to revise the entire design, go through the entire manufacturing process <laughs> within about a month and a half and have them shipping, it just feels to me like it was a half-hearted effort to begin with. And yeah, the price was half of what the Canon lens was. So maybe right. that's where the, the savings are going to be. Um, but I think that photographers in general, yes, we lust after the latest gear and uh, we obsess over MTF charts. And yeah, there are a, a myriad of arguments on the internet about any post of new equipment. Uh, but we are also on the other side of things satisfied with mediocrity it's a weird dynamic to be in uh, in the middle of mm -hmm. yeah i'm i see uh, i mean uh, i see this from a from a from an audio point of view i used to do a lot of audio production cd production and so on uh when i when i'm at my computer i have these big big studio monitors sitting uh, audio up uh, speakers sitting next to the next to the screen um, so when i hear something here on the system it always sounds so much better than when you hear it over earbuds compressed into an mp3 it's just a fact that that changes things yeah and you know if you have really good speakers um and you're listening to like you you might even be able to tell the difference between a regular cd audio versus dvd audio which really never caught on because the ability to hear that difference is so subtle and you have to have the right equipment and the right but ear th for it but then on the other hand more people can enjoy the music this way uh it's easier to transport it's easier to store because it only takes up a tenth of the office space and so on so yeah, maybe that's the price we pay for all the convenience. Well, and that's the convenience of the smartphones in our pockets, right? Uh, and oh, yeah. they, of course, they're getting better and better. And a lot of people don't even buy a camera now because that is good enough. Why should you? And so, well, it, well exactly. I, to, it to take a do family anything. photograph. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you, you, you can do anything. You, you can even shoot astrophotography now with your smartphone. Astrophotography, it... night photography. That's one thing that 2019 brought us, night photography in, in smartphones with like a huge bunch of computation in the background, taking multiple shots before you even press the button, uh, looking at the gyroscope and seeing if, if you move the smartphone and if you, do, if you don't, then it'll take a longer shot and a shorter one and it merges the ones and discards the one that don't work and then you end up with a... Uh, a fairly decent night photo maybe not as good as you could take with your big dslr on a on a, on a tripod and a remote timer but um good enough for 95 percent of people out there i'd say and i think that it's it's not going to stop here C could you imagine <laughs> if if the if the camera can see a couple of key stars in the sky to understand exactly what the 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 composition of that sky is uh, who's to say that it can't just use those markers uh, to replace the night sky to put a perfectly beautiful Milky Way in a scenario where it would otherwise be impossible due to light pollution or cloud cover or something else. This is the future of computational photography. And the Aren't, majority of people are going to be okay with that. And that bothers me. 
aren't there a few incidences already where that's happening? I, I, I think so. I think I, I think I heard something or read something somewhere. Um, can't really point my finger at it, but uh, this kind of stuff is already beginning to happen. So yeah. Well, <laughs> if you look at the the way that uh, AI and deep learning has been injected into even you know professional tools, like uh, was it Topaz that has their um, AI rescaling uh, upscaling technology that can recognize you know if it's a building or a sky and uh, uh, and and rebuild. Uh, extra pixels where there weren't any uh, because it knows what it should be yeah. and and i think that's in its infancy and that only came about this year uh to to be like actual tools that we can use rather than proofs of concepts and and uh, and white papers and and basically um uh, backroom technology that they're just trying to find a way to commercialize and now uh it's here and i think that over the next two or three years that is going to become so commonplace, not just on the smartphone uh, realm, but to professional tools that you and I can use to make our work better. Um, does it make it less realistic? Possibly. But well, then can we still call it reality. photography? <laughs> can we still call it <laughs> photography then? Or is it more illustration? Is it, is it a completely different art form at that point? Yeah, well, I, and, and it's uh, good to point out that it might not be photography, yet it might be art. Photography, uh, when you start to push pixels, when does photography stop becoming photography? If you start using the liquify tool in an image to make things less realistic than they were, but you're not adding any extra pixels? What if you're compositing multiple images together? Is that still photography? Because people have been doing that since the inception of the art form to begin with, right? And sometimes people who use these cameras that might be doing these kind of things don't even know that they are compositing. It's just happening. Yeah. Yeah. And again, compositing happens whenever you take a picture with your smartphone. It's taking multiple <laughs> images. Uh, it's creating depth maps and it's doing all sorts of secret sauce stuff in the background uh, that we don't even see. And uh, the end result is a photograph that, well, we call it a photograph. And I believe that at this point, we still should. Uh, but at some point, uh, you know, the that I don't think that 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 will change, though, Chris. I, I think that the definition of photography is fluid enough that we will always still call it a photograph, but just by that definition not being the same as it is today. You're, st you're, you're still calling that thing in your pocket a phone, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. It's uh, it's uh, a communication device, I guess would be the better way to put it. It's a revolutionary uh, internet communication device. Yes, uh. yes. Okay. Uh, well, it's it's an interesting world that we live in, and and I and I found uh, some stories, some fairly weak news. Nobody's really pushing out uh, any uh, any big stories right now in the second half of December. Um, but one of them I thought was interesting uh, from Petapixel uh, is a rumor that Canon is to use a quote moving sensor in an EOS R camera with a hybrid EF RF mount. Uh, so. Just to, to give a bit of summary here, you cannot have a camera that has both an EF and an RF mount uh, uh, across compatibility for the reason being that the flange distance is different. The distance between where the lens mount is and the sensor is, of course, in the traditional EF mount, you would have to have room uh, in that sort of chamber area for a flapping mirror, where, of course, mirrorless cameras don't need that space, which is why these cameras can be smaller. Uh, and uh, to bridge that gap, you've got a lens adapter, right, uh, that would allow you to use an uh, EF lens on an RF camera body. 
But what if you could move the sensor forward and backward? So this is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, is, is, is it credible? I mean, uh, let's let's try to take this, uh, shred this to pieces because I think it's fairly easy to debunk. Okay. <laughs> so if if you look at the at the size of a DSLR, yeah, it has to have that bigger has that bigger flange distance, and this way it com accommodates the mirror. And uh, if you try to have a camera that has a moving sensor that can have different flange distances then uh, I think I think you'd run into several issues first of all is you'd give up the the size um, savings because that thing needs to go somewhere you have to have that same like larger exactly. sensor chamber you, right because you, you end up <laughs> increasing the size of that camera to that of a DSLR so that doesn't really make a lot of sense and uh, the other thing is I doubt that they would be able to make this stable enough or, the, or precise enough because you need to move that plane and it needs to be absolutely parallel to to the mount it's like having a little scissor lift mounted horizontally inside <laughs> of your camera that's such a funny and and they'd have to come up with something smart uh, regarding the contacts the lens contacts because they are because, different yeah, they're not compatible those two mounts. yeah so <laughs> i i highly doubt that that is gonna happen um, I, yeah, I, think, well, I, I think we're looking I, at an adapter. I think that's still the way to go. Uh, and, and they have them. And in fact, I think Canon, uh, they made the best adapters to adapt the EF lenses to their new RF mount because uh, at least some of them, they did something really novel. I haven't seen anybody else do. I don't know if it's due to patents that Canon owns exclusively or whatnot. I'd love to see it in every adapter where you can drop in filters in the adapter itself so that you could modify the light path. If you want to have a polarizing filter on uh, on a super telephoto lens, you would have actually had a drop-in filter for those as well. That it would have wouldn't have made sense to have like a what a two hundred millimeter filter on the front of uh, those kinds of lenses. Both practically, it's not usable, and it would also be ridiculously expensive. Um, so Canon has made really good adapters where you can even drop in filters to put your EF lenses on the RF body. Okay, quick quick question here, just just uh, <laughs> out of out of out of left field. Wouldn't would a polarizer behind the lens be different than one in front of the lens? I don't think so because the light is not being the, the polarization of the light is not being affected as it passes through the different optics. Okay, okay, makes um, sense. Yeah. Uh, and unless you are doing some sort of, uh, you know, if uh, certain plastics and certain minerals, of course, will change the polarization of light as it passes through. Yeah. Uh, and, and a quick test that you can do is if you have uh, two polarizers uh, or, you know, you don't even need to. You've got your phone, right? We're talking about this as being a communication device. But, hey, you can make science experiments. If you have a polarizing filter for your uh, camera and you have your phone or any LCD screen, period. Uh, and you put a cheap piece of plastic uh, in between. It could be uh, around Christmas time. Maybe you grab a cheap plastic ornament off of the tree, or the uh, if anybody has a plastic jewel case from a from a CD. Remember those? Um, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you take that and you put that in between the polarizing filter and your phone, you will see a a, a crazy array of colors show up. Um, this phenomenon is called birefringence. Uh, it is a cross-polarization effect where you've got 
uh, polarized light hitting the object, but that object itself mucks about the polarization of the light. And then if you have another polarizing filter that would otherwise block out the first polarized light, all you receive uh, to to your eyes or to your camera at the end of that is going to be uh, what what light had been messed about by the object. And uh, so there's a fun over the Christmas holidays science experiment for us to have some fun with. Uh, uh, so yes, Chris, to, to your point, lenses or objects that can transmit light can mess with polarization. Uh, but lenses, but a, camera lenses don't usually. A, a good camera lens shouldn't. I mean, a Holga lens might, but uh, not anything that we would uh, uh, be doing production work with. So the the only the only thing back to the R R F E F mount hybrid kind of thoughts uh, the only thing that that might be a good thing here is that both of the mounts are kind of the same size so at least at least that one could probably mechanically be be solved in some way I, and I was kind of trying to I was just kind of scratching my head figuring out how they might be able to do this especially with the contacts as you mentioned the only way that I could think is if you would have the EF lens contacts on the top of the mount and the RF on the bottom or vice oh, versa. That, uh, but the, but then but then the all the scales on the on the lens would be on the wrong side. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I call I call that's not going to happen. No, no. I, I was just trying to find a practical way for it to work. Uh, that's what I came up with. But you know, yeah. Canon is coming out with their uh, 1DX Mark III, uh, which uh, I've said previously on this podcast that I believe that to be the swan song of the DSLR, the traditional variety. And uh, I think that you have to kind of jump in uh, completely into the, the new technology, into the mirrorless market at that point. Uh, and yeah, you might have some hybridization with the 1DX Mark III, but it's still going to take EF lenses and there's no way around that. Sort of in the, the way that Canon hybridized the uh, EOS 1V, which was their last uh, film camera, where you could actually record the EXIF data uh, on a film camera and uh, then reassociate that with your scanned negatives afterwards because they realized that that was a, uh, a valuable tool in the digital world to have that information conveniently at the ready. Uh, so we will probably see some mirrorless-like features on that camera, but only because they realize that it's, that's the way to go moving forward and everybody has to jump on that bandwagon. Hmm. Yeah. H have you have you jumped on that uh, bandwagon, Chris? I should ask. Uh, or when will you? Uh, so personally, I have not. I'm still a DSLR shooter. I um I still have a full frame and an APS-C one. And uh, the, the there are a couple of reasons I still am on that system. First of all, it was expensive. I uh, invested some significant money not maybe three years ago in that, and I usually use my cameras for at least five six seven years so um they they have to they have to get i, I want to get a bit more use out of them um the other thing is that i feel very comfortable with those cameras i have them configured in a way that i ca i can operate them in the dark upside down behind my back if i need to and and that is an advantage when it when it's about Uh, getting the shot sometimes, at least in the kind of photography that I do. So for me, it's like learning a language, yeah. right? 
It is totally, and uh, and uh, then there's the whole battery thing. Even though the the mirrorless are are getting better, I know these are my last mirrored cameras. That's that's a given. That's for sure. But I'm I'm kind of very comfortable right now because it's still a young field. 2019 brought us this big explosion in full frame mirrorless cameras. So um, it can only get better. I don't think for what I need, they're already they they are entirely there yet. Um, but yeah, so I'm happy to keep using my mirrored cameras for another couple of years, and then uh, then the mirrorless landscape will be much more mature, and then I will probably be more than happy to to uh, take that plunge. I think a lot of people are in the same boat as you, and I, I completely understand why, uh, because it is still a maturing platform, and when we have that next generation of sensors. Because right now, effectively, we have the same sensors that uh, you can find in a, uh, a flapping mirror type camera. There are great sensors in, in those cameras. Um, and when we get into sort of like a organic sensor technology, which is on the horizon, we've seen some prototype cameras shown off. Uh, Panasonic showed off one of their broadcast cameras, I believe, with a, an 8K organic sensor that will be coming to market in some form. Uh, What's the advantage will- of an organic sensor? Uh, incredibly low noise, so that the signal to noise ratio is uh, is is very very good. That dynamic range is is much much higher, uh, and I don't know the the technical reasons as to why I okay. haven't torn these apart. But I do know that that is the um, uh, the end result is you just have much better dynamic range and lower noise profiles. Mm, that's um, good. So uh, in the end. Um, that will, I think, be the bigger push. It's not the the format change. It's the technology advancement and the quality of the image um, that you're able to create. Because, you know, I should say, you know, as photographers, if you if you do consider yourself an artist, um, it's like if you're a painter. If you want to use uh, brushes that are a hundred years old. Uh, and you're a good painter, you'll still make an excellent painting, whether or not those brushes are 100 years old or you just bought them this year. Uh, and so we have to always remind ourselves that, yes, the the, the best images that I can remember, um, that I could just, hey, remember a powerful image that you've ever seen? All the ones that rattle through my head as soon as I uh, try to think of any were taken on film cameras. They're, they're taken on what we would consider antiques today. And so you always got to drag that back into perspective. Yeah, and speaking of mirrorless, my uh, partner Monica, she has actually upgraded hers to a mirrorless now. She's a Nikon shooter, and she's got the Z6. The and uh, okay, so you're kind of and looking over her shoulder, and you're of seeing course it. I am. You've, of course, I'm playing with it. Probably handled it. Uh, one of the things that's bothered me about Nikon, and it, I, I can't, I haven't ha- held the, uh, the the Z6, or uh, as I would say, the Z6, um, but they've changed some uh, fundamental operations in their cameras over the years. Like, for example, if you wanted to um, see how or see the EXIF data uh, of an image in review, you used to be able to press the up arrow on the D-pad on the back. Oh, and then they didn't do that, that anymore? <laughs> well, they, they didn't on some and they did on others. And I have no idea what they're doing now. Uh, uh, so I would pick up an image from somebody at a workshop and try to review it and see what their settings were <clears throat> when they took it. And I would press the up arrow and it wouldn't gi- it would give me information, but it wouldn't give <laughs> me the exposure information. I mean, and it was just strange. Why would you change something? It's like 
changing a portion of a language, changing the syntax, and people can't understand it anymore. And, and this is, by the way, a very, very interesting point that you just mentioned. Uh, the, the two of us both, both giving workshops, um, we have to deal with a lot of people and a lot of different cameras. And uh, if you, if there's any, any, let's say you, you want to do a manual um, white balance, a custom white balance. And uh, of course, even within the Nikon family, you have like several different ways of doing it. And now in the last 10 years, the entire camera, even in the last five years, probably the entire camera landscape has diversified dramatically. Uh, back when I started doing this, it was Canon and Nikon. That's it on the workshops. And now I think I'm looking on, on, on almost every workshop, I'm looking at at least five to seven different brands. And um, I kind of like that. I think it's, it's a, pr a pretty good competition going on there, but it's also, it also makes the job more difficult when you try to explain how something works on a specific camera. And if I've got somebody, and, and this happened uh, this year, uh, we were doing a water droplet refraction workshop. And uh, somebody wanted to be on a tripod and be using live view, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, but we were also using flash. And the camera, uh, it was a Nikon camera, was using what Canon calls um, exposure simulation. And there's a, a feature in the menu to turn that on or off. And it was giving a, a black image because based on the amount of available light and based on the uh, exposure settings that the camera uh, was detecting without adding flash, it would be a completely black image. And so it was rendering that um, uh, as, as the output. And you wanted to turn that off so that you could actually see your subject. Um, and as I mentioned, in Canon, there's a simple menu setting called exposure simulation. You can enable or disable, and it's simple. You know how to do that on a Nikon camera, or at least the camera that we were using at that time, Chris? Um, by cranking up the ISO? Uh, no, it, it'll, because <laughs> it'll still, well, it might give you the image to, to, to look at, and then you'd have to crank it back down when you're going to take the picture. But to disable that feature, there's mm -hmm. nothing in any menu to do it. No oh. custom function, no anything anywhere. And there, we, we looked up the manual. You have to press whatever the center button on the back dial is, if it's OK or select or whatever it says. If you press that, it turns the, it toggles the feature on and off. Oh, it's not it's not written anywhere. It's not That's pretty <laughs> obvious. I mean, it's easy to discover, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, we, we had to pull up the PDF of the manual for the camera in order to figure that out. And it was so unintuitive. Uh, yeah. Even if that is there, and maybe that's a shortcut to that feature, that's fine. But at least give me something where I can read it and identify it in a menu to figure that out in long form as well. But isn't isn't discoverability a general issue with, uh, especially with technology where you have like ten buttons and a screen? Yeah, kind of. Well, it <laughs> and it's funny when you have fewer buttons, discovering how to do things sometimes can actually be more intuitive because there's only so many ways that you can use a button. You can press it once, you can press it twice, you can press it and hold it, and that's all you can do. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> uh, all right. Let's uh, let's move on to the next story. Um, this is uh, again something that's more of a, a banter back and forth kind of thing, and I want to get inside your head on it. Um, reported from F Stoppers, um, uh, an article by uh, uh, Tihomir uh, uh, Lazarov. Uh, a client wants all unedited images for a very small amount. What do you do? 
And this is, uh, again, the industry is changing, not just from the gear perspective, but from how we make money as professional photographers. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to read a little bit here and then we're going to get into it. I want your opinion. So uh, you photographed a commercial client. Uh, they mm -hmm. select several images, but they want all the unedited versions for a symbolic price. Obviously, you do a good job at shooting, but what about the negotiations in this case? And they give points of view from the client's point of view, an event photographer's point of view, a commercial portrait photographer's point of view, which I don't think either of us really are. So I want to know what your point of view is, Chris. Well, being who I am and working the way I do, I, um, I, I don't like giving out unedited photos. Um, I never do this actually, and I always make sure that is uh, that is known by the client before I even take the job. So um, I'll, I'll it's give in them the contract. A, if you had it's a contract, contract. I'm give, I'll give them a, I'll give them a list of things they will get from that shot. Um, I'm quite deliberate in, in delivering a bit more than they expect. So keeps the clients happy. And, uh, th but, but raw files are not, not in that deal because, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm good with getting what I want straight in the camera. So it's not that I'd be, that, that it'd be embarrassing to show them my raw files, but, I still, I mean, there's there's contrast adjustments. There's there might be color adjustments. There might be uh, some some repairs if necessary. And uh, I want to deliver uh, the product with all its technical perfection and all its um, and all the art side of it that I think belongs in there. And if someone hires me, they ha have hopefully done their research and they know my photography and they know what to expect. And some of that is in an edit so raw files yeah I'd, I'd be happy to have a client sit next to me when i do the edit that's not a problem but uh, my my product is my product and the way i get to that product is is my thing that's yeah, uh, yeah. I, I agree i mean i'm not event an event photographer which you would imagine you're taking hundreds if not thousands of photos in a, uh, of an event some might be exceptional some might be mediocre just showing different people and faces they're not going to be Every image isn't going to be a masterpiece, uh, and you might take some of them and edit them to be, uh, you know, the, the best dozen images from the from the set, and make sure that they are the best that they can be. And I, I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time on every single image in that case. But even in that scenario, you're going to take doubles or triples of things. Uh, if you're in a, a low light scenario, you're just kind of hedging your bets on whether or not an image is going to have motion blur or not. Um, and I, I'm not going to name names. But I, I do know a fellow photographer and one of uh, one of his clients where uh, doing event photography, uh, the client would receive the files and note that there was missing images in the file names. Right. Because if you go like, oh, the numbering uh, wasn't consecutive. Uh, IMG okay. 2345, and then it's 2349. Yeah. Well, what happened to six, seven, and eight? And would ask for them specifically because it saw that there was missing files in there. And so the photographer, uh, when taking another uh, gig with that particular client, would then run all of the images through a renaming program so that yeah. all of the numbers were sequential. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. So, so that the client didn't see. See that there was any missing images. <laughs> yeah, you cheat the system if you have to. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean it kind of depends. Okay, if 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 
it depends on the job okay if um if that is a commercial job and i really want that job and it's it's it, it's the, and they have to have the raw files then so be it but um then they'll have to pay for it yeah well and and that it really, it really depends uh, but but normally with let's say it's a portrait session or it's or there's a commercial shoot for a magazine or something then uh yeah no this it's i, I deliver photos i don't deliver i mean it, it's like okay it, it's a bit like it's a bit like uh, if you order a cake you you don't get a bag of flour and some eggs and so you get a cake right yeah, yeah. Well, it, there there is exceptions to this uh, from my perspective. Of course, there is. I mean, yeah. if, if if you're a photojournalist, of course, you know you you deliver your raw files to your client, uh, to your and, you know, whoever's paid you to take them, and that's part of the deal. That that's what you're in for. That's what you signed up for. And that is necessary because um, of all the image manipulation and stuff that might might change the meaning of things. And uh, yeah, that that's kind of the norm, but not in the kind of photography that we do, I guess. Well, uh, I will uh, I will deliver unedited footage, video footage, when I'm working on a documentary film, uh, because they're going to put it together. They're going to color grade it. And they're going to cut it up and put it together with whatever they want. I might deliver an hour's worth of footage, and they might use five seconds of it. Um, however, they've decided to modify it along the way to to fit uh, whatever they're producing. So I get that because I'm not the I'm not creating the final product at that point. I am delivering an ingredient. It's like you're going into that grocery store and you're buying the bag of flour. You know what you're getting and you know what you have to do with that. And maybe you're buying it. I don't do the baking in this house. I'll buy it for my wife and I give that ingredient off to her and she makes the cake, right? I love how we're comparing photography with a bag of flour. That's awesome. <laughs> That's what we do on this podcast. Um, <sighs> but uh, you talk about the industry and how it's changing. Uh, you know, when I hired my wedding photographer, uh, it was somebody that I had worked with before. They knew that I was a professional photographer and they knew that I was also a professional printer. They were not going to sell me prints. <laughs> um, and I asked specifically when we were sitting down and negotiating uh, the whole deal, the package, the contract, um, that the deliverable to me uh, would be full resolution TIFF files. Um, and you know, they, they'd never usually deliver TIFF files to anybody, but I wanted the 16 bit TIFF files and I can convert them to JPEGs myself. I, it's a one button thing for me to do. Just give me the highest quality results that I can print. You edit them all. I mean, only give me your best edited work. I want your art. I want your artistic interpretation of our big day. Um, but from that point, I'll make the prints because I that that is also an art form, and I know that them as a photographer would not be doing the printing themselves. <laughs> uh, and so, I know you and uh, you and me both, Chris. Uh, we we both do our own printing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah so and, and 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 you want you want the best possible material, and uh, a sixteen bit TIFF file is the the way to go with the right color space, um, as opposed to some horribly compressed small jpeg or or something along those lines and i yeah uh, some people might might balk at that idea but uh i've actually had some prints where um there might be a smooth gradation in the sky from one shade of blue to another shade of blue yeah and uh the print if it was an 8-bit jpeg would come out with jaggy lines where the jpeg yeah. file or the 8-bit space anyhow uh, inherent to a, J a jpeg file TIFFs can be stored as 8-bit files too, but uh, it just didn't have enough uh, shades of blue to make that gradient proper within that space. So yeah, you know, you have to understand what you're getting. But um, when I'm working for people, I, 
this is, I, I wear so many hats as a professional and I think you do too. Um, oh, but yes. when I got into this, I thought, okay, well, I will, uh, I'll be hired to take photos for somebody and I'll deliver those photos and away you go. And then I ended up teaching. I ended up writing books. I ended up <laughs> working for documentary films and, uh, and selling prints and doing art shows and so many other things. So, um, if you could, uh, fill us in a little bit, what does, I, I don't need the numbers, but if if you're looking at your year in review, um, what has kept the lights on for you, Chris? Well, it's interesting because because uh, photography um, it is very important in my life, but it was never my my uh, my main source of income. There's another a lot of a whole other uh, a whole lot of other things, um, and I, I think as a self-employed creator maker um that's kind of the way it is today um photography has changed a lot um i mean i do commercial photography there's photography for magazines there's some architectural work there's um but, but orig originally i came from like band photography people photography it was a great fit for me because uh I'm, i come from music myself so i know how to talk to musicians that's really really helpful if you speak the same language um and at one point, I, I years years ago, I usually uh, I I actually offered the entire creative side to these clients, apart from the music itself, of course. And it was the photography and the, like the, the 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 graphic design, even the audio side of it, the CD production, the recording, the mixing, the mastering. So I have a background in that music production field as well. And uh, the That's biggest why your problem with always sounds so good. <laughs> Thank you, but um, unfortunately, there is a problem with that. Musicians are notoriously short on money, so they're not the ideal client. <laughs> that that <laughs> is is a fact. So, so I still do a bit of that every now and then, mostly on the photography side. Um, but I'd say I see myself mainly as an educator. Um, I love putting myself out there in front of people. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if it's in a podcast or in a workshop or like on a photo tour. I, I want to help. I want to help people learn and understand uh, photography better, become better photographers this way. And this is this is what's kind of satisfying for me. And then there's the podcasts, which I do like six off at this point. I think it's even seven. Um, and I didn't that, know you did so many. Go through them quickly. I mean, give yourself a plug here. Oh, uh, the, yeah, easy. So, so um, tips from the top floor, kind of the flagship biggest show. There's Happy Shooting, which is the German uh, little little sibling of it, um, which I do with a co-host. There's the Future of Photography, which is a podcast that I do now with three others, um, where we yeah look at emerging technology and that kind of stuff um there's another german podcast that i'm a guest on a regular guest on i have a podcast on <laughs> a podcast called curiously polar about arctic and antarctic issues which is a completely different topic but it came out of my my photo tours there's a german film photography podcast i do and there's uh out of all things <laughs> as a a German podcast that I do together with my mother, which is about celiac disease and gluten-free diet. You are a man of because she talents. has that because she because she has that. So so I I I I try to get her out there and uh, help people. That's wonderful. That. 
I, and uh, so, so many, uh, so many different issues, uh, quite, uh, uh, quite disparate, but you connect them all together. Well, I try to. I mean, po- not, podcasting? There, there, there's not one podcast about uh, uh, celiac disease and the Arctic and photography. I understand those are separate no, topics. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's all stuff I'm interested in. And, uh, and it's, it's good that I, that, I, that I managed to make podcasting part of my income, at least partially. Most of them don't yield anything. But, um, and it took quite a while. Um, and that is through sponsorships. Um, even though that will change starting in January, because um, this, this is a very current development uh, in podcasting, which is interesting. Not sure if it's of interest to the listeners, but um, just just to to summarize, there's a, an ad agency that a lot of podcasters work with, and their their job is to um, sell podcast ads and give that to podcasters and, and keep a cut of that, and. That was always a good thing, you know. The they would ask, "Here's an advertiser who's interested to advertise on your show. Would you, would you be interested in that?" And then I could say yes or no. And I have down, turned down quite a few because um, it needs to be relevant. I it, and I need to be convinced of the product. And um, I don't think mattresses are relevant to photography. So I'm, I can proudly say I never advertise mattresses on any of my shows. But you, you um, have much more respect for me now that you've just said that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, it's what's happening right now is that uh, the whole field of podcasting is kind of in the process of being even more professionalized. And you see this with all the platforms with Spotify and so on. Um, and that agency is changing things and they, they want it, they want all their podcasters to move to their hosting now. And if you are a podcaster and you kind of have control over that, the problem with that is that that will include listener tracking and that is a privacy issue. And so I decided to stop working with them. So starting in January, there's a, there's a, a bit of a cut in my income for sure, but, uh, and I'll have to rely more on like donations and patreon and so on but i'd rather honestly i'd rather protect the privacy of my listeners and and then there's gdpr and the upcoming what's it called california ccpa in the u.s like Mm -hmm. a privacy act thing um so it is also very unlikely that if i stayed with them they that that this would have been possible for me to do it in a legal fashion so anyway that is kind of podcasting but it's still a uh at least to a certain extent a source of income so yeah, it pays well, for itself, and that's. I, I don't. I don't make anything from this podcast. In fact, I lose money on this one because of the the hosting fees and everything else. But, oh, I lose. Uh, I lose money on 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 five of my seven podcasts. So, <laughs> it uh, kind but, of but evens fair, itself out. I'm I'm not doing this for money. I, okay, I, I should say that if I say, "Hey, I'm going to uh, you know do a workshop in such and such a place," here, check out my website, or yeah. you know, when I was promoting my book, yeah, yeah the listeners. They they might you know uh, attend a workshop or, or or buy a book or whatever it happens to be and so there is that but oh yeah um, uh, th- this is just I, I love being unbiased as best as I can be yes I have some sponsors Panasonic is a sponsor X Rights a sponsor uh, and I've done some work with On One Software and and what have you but uh, in every one of these cases. I'm free to talk about everybody in the industry with my opinions as they are uh, yeah and, 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 so and that, that, that's that, important really to valuable. be. It's important to to kind of keep your integrity, uh, especially as a podcaster. That's your own your only capital, pretty much. That's what what makes you different from everyone else. Um, and uh, yeah, so so podcasting is changing. But um, what else do I do? Bit a bit of podcast consulting. 
um, not in a big way, but I've helped helped a couple of businesses to set up their own podcasts and their own podcast studios um, to get off the ground in that respect. Um, I, I'm in, in I'm I'm I also speak, as in you can hire my voice. Um, I don't do much of that, but if you uh if you are in in certain industries you might have heard my voice on some corporate training I, videos I, sh I should get you to record my voicemail message i will be happy to do that <laughs> so but that's a tiny thing and then books i mean that's what we have in common too um uh even though you do all that yourself which i totally admire because it's a huge amount of work to get this right to keep everything um at the standard you want um while i'm working with a publisher which means that what comes out at the end financially isn't huge um there's you would be surprised how little uh is, is left over after they have invested all the marketing and the production and the layout and the yeah uh, that's a huge a huge um a big a, a lot of stuff that they need to do to make a book into a product and then to sell it and the delivery and whatever. Um, I, I guess unless you've written Harry Potter, being an author is mainly good for networking, for status, for reputation. Uh, and then, of course, to show that you thoroughly understand something. That's, I think, um, yeah. But, yeah. But, you know, but having, having a couple books out there and uh, especially, having, especially having them translated into other languages, that doesn't hurt. Um which the the English version of the film photography handbook is just out in the second edition in English. There's an English version of the wide angle book and oh oh just in interestingly enough those two books have also now been translated to Chinese which oh cool which yeah they they I we heard a while ago that they sold the manuscript to a Chinese publisher and uh, finally they have translated it and uh, it's, you know, it's weird my, my to get a package with your own book that you can't read. <laughs> Hasn't happened to me yet, but um, I uh, I was approached by a company in uh, a publisher. I think it was in Austria, and they were going to uh, contemplate uh, translating my uh, my first book, Sky Crystals, into German. Awesome. And uh, th and they they said no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, because it was such a niche book, the, the reason why I couldn't get a publisher for that to begin with was because who in their right mind would buy a book on just snowflakes and snowflake photography because yeah. that is such a small market. And then I crowdfunded it successfully uh, and produced 3,000 copies and sold all 3,000 copies of that book. Which is awesome, yeah. Direct sales only. Like in yeah. person or on my own website, not in retailers and not on Amazon. And so to me, it shows that, yes, no matter how niche a product is, we are sort of a, a global village. And anybody that has any obscure interest in anything uh, will seek a tome of knowledge on that particular subject if one exists. Yeah. And even and the, the niche is I'm, I'm in that same boat, because when we look at film photography, um, while it's having a resurgence, it's still a niche. So even even as the, our film photography handbook is out in Chinese now and in China, uh, it doesn't mean they printed 20,000 of them. I think it's still a fairly small print run because it is a very specific topic, a very niche topic. 
Yes, and, and my my new book, uh, which uh, by the way, I'll just give a quick update on for anybody listening. That oh is yeah, I'm interested it. in it. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's coming out in Q1 of 2020. The files Yay. in deadline is uh, January 14th right now to the printers. So mid January, I've got to uh, finalize everything. Uh, just actually yesterday, I was revising the section on water droplet refraction photography because I had taken a few new photos and I just wanted to find a way to fit them in. Can you believe that in this new book, there's 22 pages dedicated just to water droplet refraction oh, photography wow. <laughs> as a as a subtopic within within everything else uh and and there's equal amounts of time in fact a little bit more spent on things like ultraviolet and other weird mad scientist stuff so um it's it's coming together really nicely i'm actually hoping that later today and tomorrow we're in a bit of a cold snap right now one of the reasons why i had delayed the book was because I was made aware of a technique to photograph snowflakes that I previously hadn't considered that could be easier with a very small increase in equipment budget, a couple hundred dollars at most. So one of the things that has been problematic for me photographing snowflakes is to get reflected light off of the surface of the crystal because that, that that's what makes them shimmer and sparkle and you get surface detail and it, it's, uh, to me, that's where a lot of the magic is. But in order to do that, the snowflake would have to be on an angle uh, because the light has to reflect off of it on an angle and bounce back into the lens. If the snowflake was flat to the camera, uh, the light would have to come from inside the lens on that same trajectory, and that's not practical. Mm. Or at least <laughs> I thought it wasn't. Uh, so if you, if you use a, a semi-transparent mirror called a beam splitter, and if you put this on a 45 degree angle between the snowflake and the camera, and both of them, the snowflake is flat to the focal plane of the camera, and you have the light coming in on a 90 degree angle to the snowflake. Well, if that beam splitter is on a 45 degree angle, then 50% uh, of the light will hit the snowflake. 50% of it will carry on through. But then 50% of the light reflecting off of the snowflake will also pass through the beam splitter up to the camera. And so you can make an image with theoretically a maximum of 25% of the light emitted from the light source. Now, the issue is beam splitters of the tr traditional sense would be uh, glass. And you can't put glass in front of your subject on an angle like that and still have a decent resulting image because it's going to totally ruin the image quality uh, resulting from that. And then I was introduced to pellicle beam splitters, which... Pellicle uh, beam splitters. Pellicle beam splitters uh, are a thin film membrane that uh, they are only between like five and seven microns thick. And so they're fragile. But I've, I found one that has a 40-40 split. So you lose a little bit of light in, uh, in the transition there. But uh, it cost me $150 US for a small one, uh, big enough to, of course, cover the, the field of a snowflake. And uh, I've just been waiting for big, beautiful snowflakes to be falling uh, before <laughs> I put this to the test. The beam splitter and all of the equipment is sitting out in my freezing cold sunroom right now, all, uh, uh, all uh, acclimated to that outside temperature. And I've just been waiting and waiting. And today might be the day that I can take a photograph with reflected light of a snowflake and have the entire thing in focus in a single shot. And I don't think that's been done before. <laughs> You are truly a mad scientist. <laughs> this is amazing. I'm just looking at pellicle beam sli beam splitters online. This is this is wild. 
Uh, yeah, like Edmund it. Optics has some, Thor Labs has some. There's a few other manufacturers as well yeah. uh, that that make these things. And you know, in and they and of, they cover the entire spectrum. Yep. Yeah. So you can get some awesome. that have uh, more narrow band, uh, or they specifically are designed to uh, let certain wavelengths uh, pass through more readily than others. Um, but uh, the one that I have has a forty-forty uh, transmission uh, between four hundred and seven hundred nanometers, which is the entire which visible spectrum of light. So. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so if that ends up being successful, one of my picks of the week in the future will be a pellicle beam splitter for people to to take a look at. But still, that See? is a theory in my mind that I think will work. And I might be sorely mistaken when I actually try. But uh, the theory is sound, at least. But this 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 is the advantage you have being being the the, the publisher and, and not not I I sometimes I mean I do have kind of to adhere to some deadlines and things and you can move things around a bit more freely so yeah that is totally helpful it's also dangerous so feature creep well, is always, <laughs> always dangerous the, the the thing is when you start to write a book and I'm sure you realize this that. Uh, you realize there are gaps in your own knowledge when you try to put it all down on paper. Of course. And then you have to fill those gaps. Um, but like you said, that can be dangerous because if you start to just fill every gap, you realize that there are a million gaps uh, and you have to put a cutoff at some point. <laughs> you can't just keep going. Otherwise, you'll never be done. A book, a book is not a project you finish. It's a project you abandon at one point. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to look at it. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, let, let's get into our uh, our picks of the week. Um, I want you to go first. What, what do you have up your sleeve? I um, I've chosen Kodak Ektachrome, and especially what's come out just recently. So Ektachrome for for those of your listeners who aren't into film photography, it's a slide film, which means it's a positive film. It doesn't go through a negative phase. Uh, so, so it's more what you see is what you get. And there are not that many slide films on the market anymore, and uh, I, I still have some Fuji Provia 400 ISO there you go, film yeah. in my freezer right now, but yeah, and and uh, Ektachrome was was originally devised as as a faster and easier kind of to process alternative to Kodachrome. Kodachrome is gone, and it's so complicated to to process that no one and and I think the chemistry is forbidden now mostly. Oh, it's so toxic. Yeah, it, it is really not a thing that will come back. But Ektachrome was gone. Um, it it was gone. It was produced from somewhere nineteen forty something to twenty twelve, and then it was gone. Um, and now they they brought it back for well in a super eight format of all things because Kodak also has that <laughs> super eight camera in thirty five millimeters. It's a very fine grain film. It it used to be the a workhorse film for nat, na, uh, for um, National Geographic for NASA. Even Playboy kept using it quite a lot. There are some really notable photos. The Earthrise photo, for example, has been taken on Ektachrome. And uh, now the, the big news, and that is really making me happy, is that it's they will now also bring it back in medium format and in 4x5 large format. And it is hard to describe. It's impossible to describe how awesome a slide, a positive is in four by five to hold that in your hand it it's it's magic so the first time i saw a four by five positive was in our mutual friend uh sean galbraith's apartment oh yes oh yes and uh he had one framed up against uh, his window overlooking the city of toronto yes. and uh it was magic i mean it just is. you can frame the film itself and have that as the art form 
True, very true. And uh, the reason I think that is important is because if you are into film photography, especially color film photography, converting color negative film is difficult to digitize it and to invert it is difficult because of some specifics of how color negative film works. So this one is easy to scan. It's positive. It is the photo, so scanning is easy. Um, slide film also forces you to kind of hone your your skills you need to be on on point when with your exposure because uh it's kind of fidgety like that and in general it's a very satisfying experience so uh kodak ectochrome is my pick of the week now i i gotta ask because you've been into film photography for quite some time the uh the the real question for me is has the emulsion changed from the the original you said from the 1940s or so all the way through until 2012 uh when they brought it back did they have to change the formula in a way that produces something that is entirely different yes it is a different emulsion the ectachrome uh, I, I think one of the reasons they stopped it was not just because the demand uh, went away a bit for a while, but also because, again, there were some European changes in terms of chemistry and what's allowed and what's not. And I think there was a, an issue with some of, some of the ingredients. So they had to kind of reformulate it to a certain extent. But everything I've seen so far, and I still have to get my hand on, on the 120 format, but everything I've seen so far is that it is very similar, if not, virtually identical to the original ectochrome so i'm happy about that yeah well one of the things that i'm i'm actually eager to, to shoot is now that it's available in 120 uh, i have some medium format 3d cameras and um, ah. <laughs> and so th th this is really fun and again it's a total mad scientist niche at this point uh but uh, there was a company uh, a chinese company that made a uh a medium format 3d camera semi-modern so it's got like a light meter and stuff in it compared to the older ones that i have that date back to the 1920s but um, they, uh, they, they made this with uh, six by six. So you've got two separate images uh, square and it's got a third lens that you look through uh, that's right in between them so that you get a pretty well, uh, you know, evened out, uh, you know, comparison of the parallax between the two lenses. Um, but they also produced a, a viewer. Uh, that you could take the the slide film, if you were shooting slides, directly, put them into a little holder and put them into what amounts to a view master on steroids. And uh, when you do that, uh, and I've, I've done this with some uh, Fuji uh, uh, Provia film, it is just phenomenal. It is like you are reliving that moment. It is uh, there. It, it's hard to compare it to anything else. Uh, it's not like looking at a photograph. It's like looking at a memory. And I know that those two things are mostly synonymous. But if you if you have the ability to do that, uh, and I've even uh, taken it on, on photo walks, um, and I've got a photo of the whole uh, group uh, on a photo walk down in Toronto. And it's like, I'm just, I'm right back with all of my friends laughing and having fun in that exact same moment again. It's really a transformative art form. And I've been waiting for another good uh, slide film to be to be available. Like I, like I said, I've been hoarding some of my ISO 400 film in the freezer because that's not being manufactured anymore. And the new Ektachrome, I believe, is is 100 ISO, if I, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think it is, yeah. And yeah. again, I'm... I'm looking forward to getting my hands on that, especially in large format. That is, yeah, that's, that's a dream come true. Another slide film on the market again. 
And maybe I will, uh, I'll have to dust off my uh, Arca Swiss 4x5 camera. Uh, <laughs> I haven't used that thing in a couple of years. It's It sits on the shelf and taunts me all the time. Um, but now I don't have an excuse. Well, I'll always have an excuse. Now I shouldn't have an excuse uh, to, uh, to, to get that out and use it. Uh, 4x5, uh, it's going to be expensive though, I think, right? I think uh, we're talking about six six euros a shot. I think that's the price I've seen. Right. Well, and you bad. have to buy twenty five or fifty in a in a box. I'm assuming something along those lines. So yeah, right. it's 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 definitely not cheap. But then again, it kind of forces you into being very thorough into into making every shot count, and that is in itself is an important for me important learning experience too. It forces me to to think about what I do and not just press a shutter button and hope that something comes out. So it is good for my photography. It helps me. All right. Well, there you go. That's a great pick. And uh, mine is a uh, transitionary piece of equipment that um, you know I'm shooting with the uh, the Lumix S1R. 40, uh, 47 megapixel, um, uh, full frame mirrorless camera. Absolutely love it. It's the best camera that I've ever used. Um, but a lot of my equipment uh, comes from my days as a Canon shooter. Uh, it's EF mount, even if it's not made by Canon. I've got a, a ton of unusual quirky lenses um, that I've all you know collected in the EF mount or have adapted to it. And so Sigma has produced, they're part of the uh, the L-Mount Alliance, um, the, uh, the MC21 uh, adapter that uh, will allow you to put any EF lens onto the L-mount. A lot of the ones that are produced by Canon will maintain um, autofocus and, uh, and, of course, aperture control and everything else. Uh, and at first, I thought, okay, well, it's good, but it's not great. They've actually issued firmware updates. You can update the firmware on this adapter through the camera itself um, in order to uh, increase the compatibility with certain things. There's still a few issues. Um, uh, one of the macro lenses that I have, um, the Liowa 100 millimeter, uh, can get up to a two to one magnification. It's manual focus, but electronic aperture. Uh, that's the only lens that I currently have now that does not function with the adapter. It just gives a lens communication error. But others that are of similar designs, like the Irix 150 millimeter macro, also manual focus, but um, uh, digitally uh, electronically controlled aperture. Uh, uh, behaves perfectly fine with the adapter. So uh, in almost all cases, it's allowed me to transition every bit of equipment that I have from the Canon mount to the L mount. And um, it's, you know, it's just the, the cost of transitioning yourself from one brand to another. And I'm pleasantly surprised as to uh, how convenient and easy that switch has been made. Previously, I had uh, used the NovoFlex. They had a uh, an adapter from EF to the L mount, and it was just, I, I don't want to say garbage because it still worked, but it was so much worse than this Sigma adapter is. And there was no firmware update possibilities for that. Uh, and it was much more expensive. It was $600 uh, US for that, that adapter. That's, that's Novoflex, is a, I think, is a German company. That's, yeah, that's, they, <laughs> they have high price tags and, and deservedly so for a lot of their stuff. It's really well built. Um, but uh, I ended up having to, with that adapter, just tape over the electrical contacts on the adapter really? uh, <laughs> just to use it as a dummy uh, transition uh, and use the lenses with their apertures wide open and manual focus. Uh, but the Sigma uh. adapter adapter is uh, is much improved and i'm quite happy with it that sounds cool yeah all right well that brings us to the end of another episode of photo geek weekly chris i want to thank you again for being on it's always a joy to talk to you picking your brain and, and seeing sort of what makes you tick on an episode like this was quite enjoyable 
Well, I thank you for having me. It's always fun. And uh, for anybody listening, you can find Chris at tipsfromthetopfloor.com. That's where his his main podcast is that I listen to anyhow. Uh, I've heard good things about your Happy Shooting podcast, but I can't understand a thing that you're <laughs> saying. Uh, so I'll stick to the English-speaking one. Uh, but again, uh, you can find all the links to where you can find Chris at photogeekweekly.com, which is where our albeit very slim show notes for this episode are going to be. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and wishing everybody a happy Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, a great new year into 2020, which is when we will be on again. So until then, it's time to get out and shoot.